So, following on from uh, reflections yesterday, I thought we could take another chapter of the, of the rule, um, which is about work, the daily manual labor. You remember, and work is one of the essential elements of Benedict's uh, conception of the, of, of the daily life, of human life. Uh, there's there's uh, work, manual work, especially. He, he thinks of it as manual work rather than working on the computer. Uh, a study, he calls it lexio, which is reading. Um, and he would think primarily of reading scripture. Uh, but, um, and thirdly, uh, prayer, oratio. And prayer is the sort of the the, the element that regulates the other two and creates a harmony of life. So nothing must be preferred to the love of Christ, but that is expressed in very practical terms when he says, when you hear the bell for the prayer, you drop whatever you're doing and uh, go straight to the prayer. So if we remember to ring the bell here, uh, we have 15 minutes to drop whatever we've got to do and, and go there. And that's difficult if you're into something and uh, you're halfway through a, a particular work, it's, it's hard to uh, interrupt it. But you get used to that and actually it can produce a very good attitude to work because you can you practice detachment from it, you don't get uh, bogged down in the work and you can step back recognizing other priorities. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a habit that has to be learned, you learn it you know, fairly quickly in a Benedictine community where uh, the times of prayer should take priority. Sometimes they don't because People being human will get over-attached or over-invested uh, in, their, in their work, whatever it is, and uh, then the, the, the balance is lost. So the community is a kind of a regulating uh, system as well, because if you, in, when you're at home and you say, I want to meditate twice a day, I'm going to meditate at six in the morning, and at six in the evening, uh, and there's no one to meditate with, you're on your own, of course, it's very difficult to get that uh, habit established, because <clears throat> whereas if you're in community and you've got uh, a number of other people who you do this with and who are going to be there in the chapel, sitting on their cushions, there's more of a, a pull, but it's still uh, so difficult for human nature to um, respect that that, dis that balance because there is a discipline in it, and uh, we we all like discipline when it serves our purposes, but we don't like discipline when it uh, confronts what we want to do in the immediate moment. So we always say, "Oh yes, but I've got to do this. Or I've got to do something else." So we always find excuses. Benedict doesn't make excuses 
but he makes exceptions. So you have to be very honest with yourself if you're, um, you know, if you're stepping out of that rhythm or you're st stepping out of that discipline. Uh, and the only person that it really matters to be honest with or is yourself in a sense. So are you making an exception? In which case the, the rule or discipline is strengthened. Okay, I'll, today I need to go shopping or today I absolutely need to do something else. Uh, or are you making an excuse? And the, the, that will become obvious in time, uh, you know, which, in a way that you will recognize. So community is a very important part of the, of the, of the practice. The Buddha was once asked, how important is spiritual friendship to the journey of enlightenment? And it was one of these Buddhist stories that go on for 20 pages, and they're asking more long questions and keeps on repeating it. But basically, they ask him, is it 10% of the, of the uh, importance of the journey? <coughs> he keeps on increasing it, and eventually he says, no, it's 100%. So the insight here is something that Christianity reflects too, that we don't make our journey into the kingdom of God as isolated individuals. We, we can only be saved, uh, we can only uh, experience uh, liberation and fulfillment within the body of, of, our, of our shared humanity, the body of Christ, as, as we understand it. So no one is saved on their own just by obeying all the rules uh, or by isolating themselves. So this is, this is uh, important to understanding the contemporary um, challenge of meditation because for many people meditation is a, a very uh, me-time kind of practice. I've heard many people say that to me, you know, approaching it from a secular point of view. Meditation is me time. Well, it is in a sense, but uh, it, it's much more than that. Meditation creates the community that we need in order to meditate. So meditation creates community, but if we're going to pursue this healthily in a balanced way, then we need community to be able to do it, some form, in some way or other. So, let's, let's come back, so, so very clearly in Benedict's uh, concept of, of human life, the spiritual has the upper hand. The other elements of work and study represent body and mind. We work with the body especially, and uh, we read, of course we use the mind, and we need those activities and those exercises as well. Otherwise our bodies become unhealthy and our minds become dull. So we need, as a whole person, 
respecting our integrity, we need to integrate and balance them all. And the spiritual, the priority of the spiritual dimension, which is our third dimension, body, mind and spirit, the priority of, of the spirit is what helps body and the mind to be healthy and to be in harmony. So Benedict's insight here is that we need these three uh, dimensions of our humanity to be uh, respected, but the spiritual has the priority. And it's when we've got the spiritual dimension in its right place, helping to act as a catalyst and as a regulator of our, of our daily life, our lifestyle, and of our relationship to ourselves, when we've got the spiritual uh, in the right place, we'll find that the other dimensions, the body and the mind, which of course are very closely related, but the body and the mind will uh, find a new harmony and health. So, in, in modern life, daily life, and lifestyle, one of, the, uh, one of the big problems is, well, one of the big problems for half, or a certain part of the population, is overwork. That work becomes compulsive <coughs> and excessive and we, we, we spend too much time uh, at work, in the, on the computer, too much time writing reports, too much time uh, you know, at meetings, especially. Um, in fact, the more dysfunctional our work style becomes, the more meetings we have. And the, the meetings then create dysfunction. You can comment on that later. But, uh, too many meetings reflects, it's a reflection of um, a, a uh, dysfunctional approach to work, I think. Um, the other, on the other hand, for many people, uh, this excess of work is, is not uh, due to greed or because they want to work. It's, uh, so excessively, but it's a matter of survival. We, we hear in the news all the time that uh, you know, the economies are booming and there's very almost full employment. But full employment, what does that mean? It means one thing for the CEO of a, of a large bank, and it means another thing for um, people who are doing two or three jobs uh, zero hours uh, contracts and, uh, and and having to you know with salaries that are not not reflecting the the wealth that is being created by the people they're working for in other words they're not being paid fairly so so <coughs> we can't say that everybody's uh, burning out with work because because they're just addictive or compulsive or greedy, uh, there are many people who are still almost in the slave 
uh, category of, of an economy. They, they're trapped in, in a, a soul-destroying life, life uh, an, an unhappy life. So maybe that's reflected also in what a, a lot of young people today, and young professionals also, in reaction to this, are rejecting this kind of options. So they tend to work maybe hard, but for short periods of time, and then uh, give up the job and go and spend their money and travel the world or have a good time if they can, and then come back and make some more money. So there are many different attitudes to work uh, at work in our, in our culture today. St. Benedict gives great, I think has great wisdom about work, which is a wisdom uh, expressed in his teaching on, moder on moderation. And he makes this very explicit in his chapter 48 on the daily manual labor. And the first sentence of it is, idleness is the enemy of the soul. In other words, work is good, we should work, uh, and work is the opposite of idleness. Work is our way of bringing out good work, is our way of bringing out what is the best in us, <coughs> our talents, our spirit of service, our ability to collaborate with other people, to be, uh, to be, uh, to, to, to develop our own gifts while at the same time uh, helping others to develop theirs. That's one aspect of good work. The other aspect of good work is, of course, that it produces benefits for others. You might question whether good work in producing armaments is really good work. It may be, may be a very efficient industry, a very productive industry. People may get well paid and uh, maybe they have, you know, good working conditions, but whether you could really say that was good work because it's hardly producing benefits for others. I mean, the argument would be it's producing security, but that's not in practice how it's, how it's used, of course. It's used to, to kill and maim. 25 people were killed, I think, yesterday in Syria, including a, a two-year-old child. So, whether we can say that good work applies to every kind of industry or every kind of work, I, I think we have to question that. There has to, be, there has to be some kind of spiritual or moral or human value in what you are making or what you are doing. So work is necessary for the dignity and the and the enjoyment of, of, of human life. And without work, we become idle. If we, become, if we work to excess, compulsively, addictively, and our life becomes unbalanced, 
then the danger is that we, we, we slip from, idle, from excessive work to, to idleness. We end up disliking the work we're doing, but we're just addicted to it, and we just look forward to times when we have to do nothing. So the balance is lost, and the enjoyment of life becomes very, very wounded. So how does Benedict handle this? Well, he handles it in a very pragmatic way, which is basically time management. He says, therefore, the members of the community should have specified periods for manual labor as well as prayerful reading. So he's very, very simple solution, really. That's the timetable, just as we have the timetable for this retreat, and we respect those, those slots. So in daily life, in a, in a balanced uh, lifestyle or a balanced community, uh, we respect allowing exceptions, but we fundamentally respect the times we give for, for different uh, activities. Then he goes into a section where he talks about adjusting those times according to the season. Sometimes, you know, before artificial light, uh, days were much shorter, so you're working day, you know, it was maybe, I don't know, a few, hour, a few hours shorter. So he uh, adjusts uh, very practically to that. And at certain times of the year, when it gets darker, uh, the community should devote themselves to reading. So you'll read more, you'll, you read more uh, in the days before artificial light. You read more during the during the the, the, uh, uh, the hours of of, of, uh, of daylight. But interestingly, in this chapter on the on work. He has a section on go lying on your bed. He says, <coughs> after, after uh, 12 o'clock, I think, after 12 o'clock, and they've had their meal, their main meal of the day, they may rest on their beds in complete silence. So, <coughs> Italian siesta. But interesting that they, he, sh he should bring that in as a, well, he says may, maybe, I don't know what it is in Latin, but there's a kind of a should about it as well. You don't usually have to persuade Italians to have a siesta, certainly not in <coughs> the summer. But the idea that you take a time after the meal just to lie, <coughs> just to lie on your bed and rest, and that that's, that's it in a sense, as much a duty to yourself and respecting yourself as your need for, for work. And so this is a time of silence and a time of rest. And if during this time someone should wish to read privately, so this could also be a time of reading, you don't like to take naps <coughs> because you might fall into such a deep sleep, you can't wake up. So if you prefer to read, you can read, but without disturbing the others. 
The reason he says that is because uh, at that time, reading was more of a physical occupation. When we read today, we, we read in our heads, silently, even without moving our lips or moving our tongue. So if you see somebody moving their lips when they're reading, you know, maybe a child will do that when they're learning to read. Or somebody who doesn't read very well. But, um, but uh, up until about the 12th or 13th century, uh, the usual way of reading in the ancient world or the med early medieval world was to read aloud, but quietly under your breath. So you'd say, this is the enemy of the soul. Therefore, the brothers should have specified times for manual labor as well as for prayerful reading. This was partly because the, the, the way the words were put on the page and the way the, the book or the manuscript was organized, uh, it took time to, to, uh, to decipher it and there were not spaces sometimes between the words or the paragraphs. That all came sometime later, about the 12th century. So reading became a much more of a private and interior uh, occupation, a mental space, as it were. Whereas uh, until then, you could see that it was more physical, and therefore it had a little, <coughs> a little closer uh, relationship to, to manual work, because you were using your body, in a sense, to read uh, as, well as, uh, as well as when you did manual labor. Um, so then he says, and you know, there were different sizes of communities, different social economic conditions in which they, they operated, and uh, larger communities with uh, maybe larger farms would need to bring in um, laborers to help them with the harvest. <clears throat> but he said if uh, for one reason or another that wasn't possible or the community didn't have the money to pay for laborers, then they shouldn't complain, they would, should do it themselves. There's nothing wrong about doing your own cooking or doing your own harvesting <clears throat> uh, if you need to, just adjust to that. Um, but, then he adds, all things are to be done with moderation on account of the faint-hearted. So if the work of the community becomes so great, the demands become so uh, intrusive, that, that the weakest of the community are suffering, then this needs to be reviewed. So, this is typical Benedict in his spirit of moderation that we're trying to develop during Lent. Uh, Benedict recognizes that you have a group of people, you're going to have some people who can work, uh, you know, 12 hours a day, and uh, others, you know, who get, get tired very quickly and <coughs> need to rest and don't get enough sleep. Um, so, the community as a whole, as a whole, has to respect those differences and 
adjust itself according to those um, d different needs. You've got to, you've got to keep people together in that spirit of unity uh, and if there's any one part of the life such as work that creates an imbalance between the different personalities then uh, that should be addressed. So it's interesting again in this section on manual labour how much importance he gives to reading. He comes back again <coughs> to talking about times uh, when uh, re reading is, is necessary. Uh, as I said yesterday, during Lent, they should be free in the morning until, to read until the third hour, after which they will work until the tenth hour. So there's a lot of work in the day, but very important that they take time for reading. And during Lent, each person is to receive a book and is expected to read it, to read it, actually, not just to have the book, but to, uh, to read it all the way through. And he even, because we need authority in order to maintain moderation, it's very difficult to remain disciplined entirely on our own. That's why we need, we need others, why we need community, we need to give and receive within a communal, supportive, loving, friendly, collaborative group. And the authority comes actually from the common life. <coughs> Not just from uh, uh, external pressure. You've got to do this or you will be punished. So the authority that we need to maintain our balance, our moderation, comes from the life, the common life itself. But how do you maintain the common life when you're going to have individuals who will go off in different directions making excuses or, you know, exceptions, uh, and we're all prone to do that. We're all, we all have a tendency to become just, you know, individualistic. So, and but we also know what, the, what price we pay for hyper-individualism. So, even individuals, hyper-individuals, are attracted towards some kind of common life, to work and live together with other people, in families, in communities, in businesses. We live and work together. The common life that we share produces an authority, but it also needs to be an authority that is regulated because we all have a tendency <coughs> to do it, to go, off, to go off on our own. So, again, in a very practical way, thinking of the kind of dormitory lifestyle that they were probably living in in the 6th century, uh, one or two uh, senior members of the community should be assigned 
to go around the monastery at these hours for reading to make sure that the monks are reading. So we don't do that now, but uh, one can see how seriously he took the need to help and su support the members of the community to maintain that integration, that balance. Now we, we sort of smile at this today, and it, we would be offended at that today, of course. Somebody comes around and says, knocks on your door and says, why aren't you reading? Were you falling asleep while you were reading? And uh, I haven't got, made much progress with this book, um, so we'd be offended about that. So, but in some way or other, the, the community helps us, should help us, to, um, to keep the balance. Their duty, he says, is to see that no member of the community is so apathetic as to waste time. Remember, he doesn't like wasting time. He doesn't like idleness. He doesn't mind you lying on your bed and being still and being silent after you've had a meal. That's not idleness, that's rest. Idleness is wasting your time. And it's says too much time wasting in your life, and even very busy compulsive people can waste time, especially at you know, anyway, too many meetings. So if, we're, if there's too much waste of time, that doesn't mean just resting or having time off or recreation or having a break, but wasting time is another concept altogether. So idleness is the enemy of the soul. Wasting time is the enemy of a balanced life. So, if anyone is so, he used, the translation here is the word, is apathetic, Sediosis, so yeah, kind of apathetic, lazy, lacking in energy, lacking in will, <coughs> just sort of slow and lazy, I suppose. Anyone is so lazy as to waste time or engage in idle talk. Remember, he doesn't like idle talk, just chatting to fill up the time. Then if they're so lazy or so <clears throat> apathetic as to waste time in idle talk to the neglect of their reading, they will not only harm themselves, but they will distract others. So it becomes a kind of um, uh, a, a bad habit in, in, the, in the group, that you waste time together, idle talk or um, wasting time. So if such a person, and he's, he's very attentive to how individuals can create examples <coughs> that lead others in the wrong direction, because we learn from example, we learn from each other. It's part of the meaning of mutual obedience. We teach each other 
by the way we live and how we deal with our failures. It's not that we're expecting people to be perfect, but we, 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 we are trying to help each other to recognize and, and get over our failures and to put each, each other back on the right track. Never. So, but he said, if there is someone, God forbid, who should be this kind of disruptive person, then they should be corrected first and a second time. And uh, this is something that has to be addressed with the authority of the rule, the authority of the common life, in order so that, in order that the greatest degree possible, people living and working together can maintain their priorities. And the priority is this balance and harmony of life. And in this balance and harmony of life, which is very fragile, but in that balance and harmony of life, body, mind and spirit, prayer, work and study, we are able to release the spirit of discretion and wisdom and moderation. So these very necessary aspects of the human mind uh, are subtle, they can easily, sensitive, they can easily be lost when we become distracted when we become compulsive, when we become addictive, uh, when, we, when we become idle, waste time. In any of these uh, negative conditions that Benedict is describing, we lose wisdom, we act foolishly, and we lose discretion, so we make bad judgments. <coughs> Then he says, on Sunday, everyone is to be engaged in reading. So that's the primary thing you do on Sundays. Um, except those who have been assigned various duties. So again, here he makes a rule or identifies a, a, way, of, um, a way of behavior that should be part of the common life, but for every rule there is an exception. So people who've been assigned various duties will mean on a rota, of course, in every community you have, you have a rota. Not everybody does the same job every week. So there's, there's a, a, a variety. So there's somebody who has to go and collect the bread in the morning, uh, doesn't have to do that every every day or every week. So, uh, and then, because he's very realistic, <coughs> he says, if anyone is so, uh, he says, if anyone is so negligent, so difficult to teach, uh, that they are unwilling or unable to read or study, 
do you think he says you should do with them? Hmm? Yes, exactly. Okay. If, if they absolutely won't do it, then let them work. It's, you know, it's better, better for them to work than to be sitting around idling and gossiping. So let them work. And then, so he's, he's very realistic uh, and accepting of human weakness. And finally, he says, and this shows that the whole of this program of developing a harmonious and a balanced life in the spirit of moderation that allows wisdom and discretion to determine how we relate to each other and how we deal with problems. So the whole of this vision of life, daily life, prayer, work and study, doesn't matter whether you're in, a, in Bombay or whether you're working in New York or you know, in a hospital or whatever kind of life you're living, these are essential principles. So he says, uh, he, he describes the essential principles, the essential priorities, but he, he does so with a, a, a spirit of compassion, because there are going to be, from time to time, people who can't do it, or they just can't do it for whatever reason. So he's, he doesn't punish them. If they really can't, he said, you know, they should be spoken to, they should be corrected, they should be helped. By example, above all, uh, to get back into harmony. But if they cannot do it, maybe because they're sick, they're physically sick, or weak, just weak in will or weak in body, then they should be given a type of work or craft that will keep them busy. It's not a bad thing to be busy. <clears throat> that will keep them busy without overwhelming them or driving them away. So, great tenderness and uh, compassion and gentleness here. And this, is, this, is, this is the kind of thing that Benedict uh, is, really characterizes his approach and distinguishes him from <coughs> other teachers of that period. So, if, if you're too sick, or you're too weak uh, to be able to keep this harmony, then, you know, give them a, a simple kind of work or a simple craft that will keep them occupied so that they don't feel overwhelmed. <coughs> or they don't feel they have to leave. So his idea is, in the community, there will be different kinds of people at different stages of developing this spirit of, of life, this, this balance. And if the community can, if it can, not every community can, but if it can, it should be able also to accommodate 
those who are struggling with body or mental problems and you don't just send them away because they're not efficient you as far as possible uh, try to keep them in, allow them to, to grow at their own perhaps slow rate or um, if the whole community were like that then uh, it would be a little difficult to do, be, become a therapeutic community but his idea really is, is that when you agree, if you agree, if the majority of the people living a common life agree on these certain basic priorities and values and they try to do this in a way that creates an authority in the common life itself, the example of daily life, then that should be enough to allow everybody to grow at their own pace and to keep everybody within the degree of moderation that is right for them because moderation, as we said yesterday, is not something you can ever really define because it varies maybe from day to day or from person to person. And the abbot, he says, must take the weaknesses of these, these weaker members into account. A good example of this is when he speaks in the chapters on food and drink. He has a famous section where he says about wine, he says, um, uh, in the good old days, uh, we, people engaged in this kind of life would never drink wine. But you can't convince the monks today in the 6th century, you can't convince them of that now. So they're going to, you know, they just insist on drinking wine. So he said, at least what we have to do is to establish a, uh, a rule in, by which no one will drink to excess. So then, how do you define that? So he says, therefore, we uh, prescribe that every, every person should be given allowed one hemen, they don't have to drink if they don't want to, but everyone could be allowed one hemena of wine a day. Problem is, nobody knows how much a hemena is. <laughs> so, some people think it's a half a bottle, that's, that's usually estimated. And if you go to an Italian monastery, in front of every, every, every place, in every seat in the refectory, there is a bottle of wine and uh, some more or less half a bottle each and well because people drink in, in, in uh, Latin countries uh, in, in Europe alcohol isn't, isn't seen in quite the same way I think as in northern Europe northern, northern monks would, would drink the whole bottle, and, um, no, not literally, but they would tend to drink more because they don't, they, they see it as a more um, 
war for indulgence, whereas in, in the South, of course, it's war for digestion and just part of, part of the culture. So, in any case, the, the meaning here, or beer in, in uh, Northern Europe. So, um, the, the point is that even in something quite sensitive like alcohol, because if you take that to excess, there's a real danger of either becoming an alcoholic or um, just spending too long on your bed when you, when you lie down. Um, he, he, he applies the same spirit of moderation and discretion, this combination of moderation and discretion, or, or understanding that you can only really apply moderation with discretion. But that discretion can't be just an individualistic thing, unless you're a very wise person, for most of us, we need a common rule or a common life to establish certain norms or conventions. <laughs>